Oh, the NCAA has another problem on its hands. It's got eligibility problems for seniors and scholarships, and it has an eligibility problems for high school seniors who need the SAT and ACT. Arizona fan apathy is at an all-time high. What happens if there's no football? Larry Scott takes a pay decrease. Maybe that should be permanent. The conference is sitting on a pile of emergency cash. Should they use it? And we got an interview with former Cal defensive backs coach, current Miami Dolphins defensive backs coach, Gerald Alexander. I'm George Reister with Ralph Amson, and this is the Pac-12 Apostles. Thank you guys for listening to the Pac-12 Apostles. We appreciate your time, appreciate your energy. Please make sure that you share the feed with everybody that you know who listens to the Pac-12, who cares about the Pac-12. Contact us if you want to... Shoot us an email if you want to get a hold of us at I'm mad at unafraidshow.com or hit us on Twitter at George Reister or at Ralph Amsden. And also leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcast. Ralph, oh Lord, some weeks are slow. Some weeks are fast. But I will say, no matter what the week is, you are always the greatest Twitter finder, tweet weirdo thing finder going down the rabbit hole of research band that I know, and I love it. Yeah, I. Uh, it, it's definitely not helping my um, <laughs> my my hobby of just diving full on into, you know, somebody's Twitter history. Um, that there's not you know sports to distract me or anything like that so you know it's 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 a it's a hobby that annoys people if they are on the receiving end of it and can be entertaining for for others um and i'm trying to i'm I'm actually trying to 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 limit my time spent online because you just can't avoid the onslaught of um news updates that you can't really do anything about that you don't really have any control over um and also you're just you're you're kind of watching a lot of people wear their anxieties on their sleeves and uh, I'm trying to be conscientious of the fact that people are nervous or scared or bored and that's informing a lot of the things that they're putting out there right now so I don't want to reply to somebody when they're not you know them their full selves <laughs> and so I I've, I've I've been limiting my my usage but every once in a while I'll see something that sticks out to me and it's just it's nonsense we've actually been enjoying this Corona time is it, I've heard other people respond to it because it's weird because there are some people who we're really close to who know people who have been seriously affected by Corona, like have had either some people die or are in critical condition in the hospital. Some know multiple people, but that hasn't happened to our immediate circle. So I guess that that probably also um, factors into my personal happiness um, that I don't know any anyone or haven't heard about it because I'm not like a huge Facebook reader either. So I may have missed some of those things. So while so 
it's weird because on one hand I feel a little bit irresponsible, but on the other hand I'm like, uh, I actually feel feel okay right right now. So you, we we can't ignore other people, but at the same time, like you have to make sure that you are, you know, protecting yourself. But that leads me to what I was asking you about, Ralph, about you going down a Twitter rabbit hole. And last night you tagged me in a tweet and it was so Ralph Amsden. It was talking about the Arizona fan apathy. And I Arizona, like, honestly, I'm wondering, do they have a fan base, a real fan base at this point? Because um, uh, Kevin Sumlin, he tweeted out what his usual. I, I, I honestly, I'd never seen that hashtag. So I'm gonna let you explain it. Okay, so every single time most of these programs get a commit, you know, they have something that they tweet out to fire up the fan base. So when Kevin Sumlin was at Texas A&M, every time they'd get a commit, uh, even before it would go public or not, anytime somebody would call Kevin Sumlin on the phone and say, hey, I'm going to come to Texas A&M, he'd tweet out just one word, just yes, sir, hashtag yes, sir. And uh, and the fans would go nuts. And Texas A&M has a wildly active fan base. Um, but we see that in the Pac-12 too. You know, you'll get you'll get UCLA coaches tweeting eight clap. Or you, when Chris Peterson was at uh, at Washington, you always got the woof, right? And so you know that, and or you you get like a uh, you get train emojis from the ASU coaches. Um, dating back to Herm Edwards press conference of like, you know, it's time to get on the train and, uh, and, and it just fires the fan bases up. Oh, like we got to commit. Um, and last night, uh, Kevin Sumlin does what he's been doing all year. He tweets out a gif of, uh, uh, DJ Khaled saying another one for any time they get a commit and, uh, man, nobody cared. <laughs> There's nothing else going on in sports right now at all. And and Kevin Sumlin tweets out the Block A class of 2020 with DJ Khaled, and he get it, 35 minutes after he sent the tweet, it had five retweets. Five. And three of those were his employees, like were low-level recruiting staffers at yeah. the school. And, and so I tweeted that out. It's just, I, I just wanted to know, like, do University of Arizona fans even care anymore? Because even, I mean, it, it, everybody, it, it feels like uniformly, maybe 90 to 95% of hardcore USC fans want Clay Helton gone. But if he tweeted out, you know, fight on, and the indication was that they landed another commit, even before ever finding out who that commit was, you'd have a bunch of uh, fans of USC either retweeting that or the casual fans, you know, they, they they wouldn't care at all. They'd just be fired up that anybody wanted to go to USC. And I, and there's no hardcore, you know, Arizona fans retweeting this. There's no casual fans that are just excited that somebody made the choice to want to go there. And I had somebody jump in my mentions and say, well, the reason nobody's excited is because the kid that committed doesn't even have a profile on rivals or 
or 24-7. His name's Anthony Pat. He's a six foot five, 270-pound offensive lineman um, who committed to University of Arizona over like Black Hills State, right? Yeah. Um, so maybe, maybe the hardcore recruiting fans, but what about all the just regular casual fans who have no idea about any of this high school recruiting stuff? And all they know is that they got a kid to say that he wants to go to University of Arizona. That should be something that's exciting. Um, and it just, oh, it, if, it just if, fizzled if, out. If Arizona, if Arizona State announced a recruit, uh, announced a commit right now, if Herm Edwards or Antonio Pierce tweeted it out, wouldn't it be met with? I mean, you got ASU Jedi. You got. I mean, it's gonna go. It's gonna be noticed. People are gonna care. It could be sent out at midnight, and people are are yeah. gonna get texts about it. And yeah, exactly. I I just think that because most of uh, most college football fans have the ability to just instantly drink the Kool Aid, like even if. Even if it's not a highly touted player, it's like, hey, somebody wants to be part of our family. Let's welcome them. Yep. And this is, I mean, this, I, I, I replied to you tweeting at me last night with just a, um, an example, one small example of an early March, uh, yes sir, that Kevin Sumlin tweeted with no explanation. Yes, it was just yes no sir. No photo yeah. attached. That's it from March of 2015. And it had like 250 <laughs> retweets and, and way more likes. And I don't even know if that was about a commit or not, because it would have happened post signing day. Um, I, I don't even know what that was in regards to, but, but people just get fired up for their head coach to just, um, you know, I just uh, imagine if, if your head coach jumped on Twitter and all he did is write, go Arizona. Like that should fire up the fan base. You should always yep. uh, just be you, you. You should always just be one spark away from getting fired up if you're a real fan. And uh, I, I'm very concerned that um, they just do not care. And uh, or maybe they're maybe they're just done with this era, or maybe they're just done with with football altogether. And I had a bunch of ASU fans jump in my mentions. Cause I got a lot of ASU fan followers from my time reporting for devil's digest. And they were like, yeah, well that Arizona sucks. That's just them. But I, it, it, I wouldn't have tweeted about it if it, if it didn't seem irregular for it to just be completely ignored that they landed a player when nothing else is going on. Like this should be blown up way past like this, this should be over celebrated and it's just, you know, they don't care. Yeah, you. Yeah, I don't know how. Well, like it, it. It's almost like how do you revive a fan base from from the dead? And I don't know if they've had a huge fan base since. Like, how how was the fan base? How would you have graded the fan base when Khalil Tate's sophomore year? Uh I mean, I, there was some excitement and attendance was up and. You know, I, I, what they have, I don't know, but berserk over a commit. They would have cared. Absolutely. They, they would have cared, but they don't, there's not been anything exciting. And, and that, that's the other thing that's crazy to me is that they brought Kevin Sumlin in to be, to up their recruiting game. And it's been just terrible. And, and I'm, I don't want to say anything disparaging about this kid, but the reality uh, of the situation 
is that he wasn't even getting uh, FCS offers, right? So they're getting a late commitment from a kid who didn't have any other options. Um, and so, you know, I can see, I can see being disappointed, but you're not even seeing that. You're not even seeing people tweet at Kevin Sumlin, like do better. Nobody's saying anything. That's, that's much scarier than every time Clay Helton tweets, he has a thousand replies from USC fans telling him to get bent. Right. At least they care. At least they care. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's like the old saying that, um, when a coach yells at you or a teacher or a boss or whoever is, um, when, when you're like, yo, will you stop yelling at me? Will you stop? Will you leave me alone? And they say, the moment that I leave you alone, that's when you should be worried because that doesn't mean, that means I don't care anymore. <laughs> um, so, uh, but you, but, but to bring up Clay, Clay Helton, you asked a question when we were talking about topics last night about what happens if there's no football, what happens to Clay Helton specifically? Because you can't fire him. I mean, how could you possibly fire Clay Helton if there's no season? You already, clearly, you wanted to retain him. So how can you then fire him when there is zero possible chance that he did anything fireable because he's not a, you know, do something fireable guy? So there's zero chance that he would have done something fireable. So how do you fire him if there's no college football season? That's a legit question. What happens to him? I think he has to stay on the job. Yeah, I don't think so that you can fire him. I guess let's back up uh, a smidge. <laughs> let's back up just a little bit because I people might be shocked hearing what you just said that we jumped right into what if there's no football. So I just want to get where your head's at on this, on what the odds are that you think that that could even be a possibility. Because if we're talking about it, it means that we at least possess some level of belief that, that we could see either a delay or cancellation um, of the football season. So where are you at on that? I'm at the point where I refuse to believe that football will be canceled. However, I'm an intelligent human being, so I must acknowledge that it could happen. You know, that it appears that things are getting better, right? It appears that the numbers are going down, well, except for in New York and that in the rest of the world, I mean, that the numbers appear to be flattening or going down in a lot of Europe and all of that. And people are getting a little bit of hope. But at the same time, they're talking about a potential flare up after. So things could get better by like May. Everybody could kind of get back to work in June. And then August, all of a sudden you have a big flare up again from everybody who went back to work who wasn't already healed. And you're just like, that is what could interrupt football. So while I do in my heart, I'm like, they can't cancel football. They can't cancel football, right? I am at the same time like, ooh, maybe football will be played with no fans. Like I, I'm on, I'm leaning toward, yes, there will be football. Probably, I think that I'm leaning more toward it'll happen without fans, more than it'll happen with fans. But then I think about all the logistics of college football that you can't quarantine a hundred guys plus coaches plus. 
uh, training staff. Uh, plus, when the guys get hurt, they got to go get MRIs. They got to get all. They got to go to school. All of this stuff. You can't quarantine all of them, and they're in a physical contact, literally exchanging fluids. Not, I mean, so in the building. So I actually think that football, in particular, is a harder sport. So if there's no fans. Like they can't really be a game because you, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so did I just talk myself out of it? I I think I think that we'll even if we do see another flare up, it could come sooner. Um, you know, we we could be talking about June. Um, I think that they will wait as long as possible to make any sort of decision on what to do with football. I think that I think that now that we saw that they were willing to cancel the the um you know March Madness and everything like that, it just has to be on the table. You know, that they've made unprecedented cuts and they've they've actually canceled entire seasons for people and the most important event in the NCAA um, which is the you know the the March Madness tournament. So if they're willing to cancel those things, you, you have to think that football is at least on the table. So I think that's where we get to a point where we say, all right, then we have to examine what would happen um, with Clay Helton. And my view is absolutely nothing. You know, I think that um, I think if anything, it might actually cool people off um, because it, imagine having to keep up that level of energy for three to four years that you want somebody gone, you know, you, you actually <laughs> might see, you, you might, you might actually see some people who were very passionate become apathetic or maybe uh, go away altogether. But I think for Clay Helton personally, you know, it, it, it can't be a bad thing. I don't see them using time off as an excuse to make a move. I don't see that at all. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. It's going to be impossible for them to make a move during. I, I mean, as, truthfully, it's actually very irresponsible for them to make a move if there is no football. It's literally impossible. The University of Oregon hasn't had a wide receivers coach since the first day of spring ball because they have uh, put a freeze on hiring like most other schools have. They have put a freeze on hiring because you don't want to add more debt to your or more expenditures to your bottom line. They're actually trying to cut expenditures right now while school's not in They're They're trying to get it way down. And um, and if there's no football, then there's no need for a football coach. You can't fire a football coach when there's no revenue because now you got to pay a buyout and then you got to pay new guy. So it, it would be completely irresponsible. It would be a bad look on the university. It would make students mad. It would make donors mad. Like there's zero chance that a coach, unless he does a Bobby Petrino, uh, like you, you, you know, ride off, uh, ride off with your mistress on your <laughs> motorcycle and crash and then lie about it. And she works in the athletic department. Besides that, nobody's getting fired. Nobody. I mean, if Rich Rod, if the whole Rich Rod thing had happened uh, at, at Arizona during this Corona time, he would not have been fired. Like you just you you just can't fire people during this time. It's just not it's just not fiscally 
or socially responsible. Speaking of uh, fiscal responsibility, how about our boy Larry Scott taking a, uh, a what, what I'm assuming is a couple hundred thousand dollar pay cut over the next uh, uh, couple of months? Uh, it's the right thing to do. It's commensurate with what people in the university were doing, that, that university officials are doing who are making far less money than him. You have... Uh, CEOs, some of them foregoing their salaries. You have all sorts of things that they're doing to help people out. So Larry Scott in 2018 made $5.3 million, which is absurd. The worst conference commissioner in the conference with the lowest um, uh, revenue makes more than the SEC and the Big 12 commissioner, I think, combined. It's silly. If it's... it is absolutely silly. So should he be taking a 20% decrease? Yes. He should be taking a 100% decrease. And also, that makes it tough <laughs> on a side note. You can't fire Larry Scott now either. He may be stuck in the negotiations for the next TV deal. Uh, well, b- because his contract is going to be up in 2020. I'm sorry, 2022. But, um, but you did the numbers, Ralph. 20%. Of his salary, obviously, if it were over the course of an entire year, he'd be losing a little over what? No, yeah, he'd be losing a little over a million dollars. But what happens if it's just what we believe while we're on lockdown, while everything is shut down, like you know, till like June or so? Yeah, then he then basically he'd be scheduled to make about one point three million dollars over the next three months, and instead it's going to pay him just a little over a million. So uh, we're talking about maybe like a two hundred seventy thousand um, dollar hit to his pay, which is nothing to sneeze at. But obviously, you know he he makes a lot of money at five point three, and this is assuming he hasn't received a raise in the last two years because the last. Um, the last, you know, data that we have for the pay that he took home is 2018 when he was making 5.3 million annually, which, which I think you'll like this, George, uh, if the PAC 12 network is available in only 18 million homes and, and available doesn't mean that people watch it. Um, if the PAC 12 network is only available in 18 million homes, that means that Larry Scott collects 29 cents for every single home that the Pac-12 network is available in. Wow. Wow, that is incredible. Um, Dude, (laughs) 29 cents. I'm not giving him a nickel. (laughs) Well, well, actually, I I am. I just wish I didn't have to. But those are some of the, you know, major impacts of it. But the conference is going to be... Um, is going to lose from the uh, from not participating in March Madness fifteen point five million dollars in revenue. The conference is, and yeah, it could have been a little bit higher depending on how far the teams advance. But that's fifteen and a half million dollars. But then we come to come find out from the handy dandy people from John Wilner that the conference actually did something very responsible. They kept the reserve. Uh, they they uh, when they got the new TV contract, they put two million dollars in, and then they put in five million dollars 
for four years in and but they recently stopped and now they have 22 22 and a half million dollars that had been put in so you know it's sitting in some sort of interest bearing account so it's significantly more than that but it's at least 22 and a half million dollars so the question is should they use that 22 and a half million dollars or part of it to make up that shortfall for the basketball revenue missing or should they hold on to it and in case there's no football which would be devastating to every school's bottom line i like i at first when i when i when i first read it i was like okay yeah that's an easy move pay it out you still got a reserve left you start to build it back up but then it's like if there's no football you're screwed so I, I don't know if it really makes a difference whether you pay it now or pay it pay it later. If something happens with football, you still got to pay it. Uh, so do do you? I mean, that's the whole thing of of and and how far does it go? What do people use that money for to make up the difference of expected salaries for their coaching staff? You know i I talked to a, a I talked to a college football coach. Um, earlier this week, because, you know, I've field calls all week long about different prospects and, you know, and uh, people, um, you know, getting my opinion on a kid or, or usually it's just people calling me for somebody else's phone number. Um, but you know, I talked to a college coach, uh, this week and it was, you know, they they were in a situation where they are at a college now and an opening is coming at another college and and they got the call to say like hey you should you should make this move and things are all so uncertain right now that 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 they're turning down that job and that raise um because they they're not sure that that you know where the funding's going to come from at least at their current school they have a guarantee you know that yeah. they'll at least be paid out through through the end of the year but those things haven't been put into place at the other school. Right. And so it, it was just, it, it's, it's been interesting to talk to, um, you know, a, a few coaches this week actually that have moved on to new schools and wanted to be able to hit the ground running, but instead they're just at home hanging out with their family. And, and, and a couple of them have told me the same things that you said, like, I don't know if I've eaten dinner 10 days in a row with my family ever. Right. And so <laughs> yeah. they're kind of, but at the same time, the, the, the expectations of the family is that pace. So there's also some downsides that come to come with being around all the time. But, you know, all, all these coaches are forced to just kind of watch film and think, you know, and, uh, and, and coaches don't often slow down. It's those moments when they do get to slow down when the season ends that you often see a lot of movement. Well, extend that period out over the course of several months and you have restless people in a restless profession being forced to rest. And uh, and it's it's just been really, really interesting. And the uncertainty, it's 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 really building up of, you know, hey, the only reason that I'm living in this podunk town where I don't have any connection to anybody and now my kids are locked away. Um having moved away from somewhere where they actually had friends and, and we're, we're all in this town together where we can't even go out and get to know the town. You know, what do we do? 
And it's just, it, it, you know, I'm not asking anybody to be extra sympathetic for people who are, you know, financially doing just fine in a time where 10 million people are filing for, um, for unemployment benefits. But I, I just, I think that it'll be really, really interesting to see what comes of um, the coaching profession and how this shapes some people. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's a really, really interesting time for these folks who would be out on the road right now, who would be um, hosting uh, visitors, who would be together coming up with plans, who would actually get to work with the players on campus. A lot of these people haven't even had a chance to meet the players that they're going to be coaching yet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Like, yeah. Like the, uh, like, Col- like Colorado's coach. They, yeah. uh, Carl, Carl Durrell, he hasn't even had a chance to meet his players. Hadn't even had a chance to meet them. So, yeah. So how do you build chemistry? How do you build rapport? How do you build a culture? Cause you got the same culture that was left there by, um, and, and granted that may not be a bad thing, but you don't get a chance to put your stamp, your mark, your imprint on your team. So I, I think that, that the college football season, if it does happen, that teams are going to be flying blind a little bit because spring ball, like there, there has been a spring ball inequity. I mean, if you really think about it, there have been some schools that have had a lot of spring ball. Uh, you, you know, some of the air, like Arizona state, they've had a lot of spring ball. But then you have schools like, USC, Washington, one practice, no practice. I, it's it's tough. It's tough, and and I guess the especially if you're breaking in a new quarterback. Yep. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. So what do you what do you think that um, how do you think that they should handle this when it comes back? Do you think that they should be able to get their spring practices back? I mean, to make it even, or do you think that they should just you know? Leave it how it is because Arizona State started uh, February 24th. They completed completed two weeks. They had a bunch of practices. They have already had um, uh, seven practices before the shutdown. Oregon State had five. Utah had three. USC had one. And Colorado, Washington and Washington State never even got on the field. And they all have new coaches. So how do you balance that out? Oof. Um, knowing the NCAA, it's going to be a sorry, not sorry. Uh, and and we just move forward. But knowing college coaches, <laughs> they're going to push for equity. That's that they're, they're obsessed with fairness and, hey, they got theirs. I need to get mine. Uh, they want time with their players and they want to be able to practice um, but it has to fit within NCAA rules, right? You can't, you can't say, Hey, that 20 hours a week that you're allowed to have them gets bumped up to 27 hours a week, uh, over the course of a three or four week period so that we can make up for it because they still have to do school as well. So, you know, something, something has to give because I don't see Washington. I don't see Washington state. I don't see these schools saying that it's okay that they didn't get that time that other people got. Um, 
with with their players, you know, and and Arizona State gets to kind of just sit back and um they're and, playing with house the, money right now. They're yeah. playing with house money. Yeah, and at the same time, you know, it it that's they needed it. They're switching from a 3-3-5 to a 4-3 base defense. Um and they got what four new offensive linemen to to break in and a new running back and a new primary receiver. So they they need it. They they really need it. And they were able to get some of those practices in. And I don't I don't think it's going to be the difference between, you know, winning games um or anything like that. But oh, if I it's do. a game of inches, if it's a game of inches, then if somebody does end up losing you know, what's going to stop them from turning around and saying, well, hey, but they had seven more practices than us. So this this wasn't actually fair. Um, you know, I think by the time you get into Pac-12 play, you will have had that time to gel as a team at that. I just I don't think it matters when it comes to squaring up against other other Pac-12 teams, because then you're already two months into the season. Everybody's already in game shape. And if you're going to be on the same page or not, it it, w- it will have happened by that time. Oh, so I don't, I don't see there being a real extreme advantage. But some of these teams are going up against some powerhouses early in the season that are at a conference, and they need that, right? Then, and Ralph, are also, you a crazy I, man right now? <laughs> Seriously, I, I, I don't know. I I think that it it takes a while to to get warmed up, um, but once you're warm, you're warm. Right, I don't. I don't think that the the number of practices that they're missing in the spring is gonna make a difference in November. I think that it'll be more evident in August. Oh, okay. See, now that I agree with you on. Now that I do agree with you on. But the problem is where 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 I see it is obviously like you mentioned. Great point. The big matchups. You got Washington. Um, Washington, Michigan, Oregon, Ohio State, like uh, Alabama, USC. Huge matchups in the beginning of the season. The problem is this, as I see it. Spring ball is where you see a lot of really good talent emerge. Like there's always every team, there's one or two kids that you're like, oh, wow, where, where did he come from? I didn't think he was going to start. And they get those reps. They get a chance to get better. I mean, that's how the Brady Breezes happen or other walk-ons. That's where they earn their money, earn their scholarships, and earn their playing time. And to come into the fall, whoa, like, and coaches are going to want to hit. They're going to want to tackle. I mean, I think it's going to put a premium on good coaching because you're going to have to be able to teach without being on the field as much because you've you've lost a lot of your teaching time. So now teaching has to be more paramount than even your on-field time. So you got to get kids focused to buy in and be concise and, and clear on your messaging and on your expectations and conveying your scheme. So I think the good coaches will excel, but I can see a scenario where if things get pushed back like way deep into like kind of midsummer even where they can't do spring ball where they got to just go into camp that you could have chaos this college football season because teams aren't going to be be ready in the beginning so you're going to have losses at the beginning 
I mean, from top teams. I think that, that some of them aren't going to play well on some weeks. It's going to throw everybody off. And you could have like three, three lost teams in the, in the top 10. It like by like, or, you know, or two lost teams in the, in the middle of October. I think that this could be chaos, dude. Or the exact opposite could happen. And because you're talking about, you're talking about coaching, overcoming talent. And I think that that happens with more time to prepare. So you might actually see some of these teams that have recruited well the last couple of years. If everybody's on an equal playing field of not being able to uh, prepare the way that they want to prepare, you might see the teams that are just more talented come out and jack stomp everybody else. I mean, that that's the other side of this is if battles are won in preparation and you can overcome talent with preparation, a lack of preparation is possibly going to give the advantage to talent. So you you might see these teams that have just stockpiled monsters over the last three years go out there and have a much larger advantage um, over some teams that would traditionally be able to scheme their way into some of these games and steal some wins. But I, here's my question. How do you think it's going to affect a guy like Anthony Brown, who is a three-year starter at Boston College, has decided to grad transfer to University of Oregon and was hoping to get a fair shake to, to take down Tyler Shuck, which I've said on this podcast that no matter who comes in there, it's not going to happen for them. But you might have a different mindset on this. You know, that's that you're 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 an alumni. You you want them to be in the best possible position, regardless of who's playing whatever position. I have a little bit of a bias knowing Tyler and his family and watching him play over time. And Anthony Brown's a good player. He went 14 and 11 at a school that doesn't win uh, all that much. And he's got a lot of experience, but he's not able to go out there as a grad transfer and gel with this with this team that all has a relationship and has chemistry with, with Tyler, do you think that this ends up uh, putting him at even more of a disadvantage? I think for Anthony Brown, I think that this sucks. I think that he was getting ready to grad transfer like a bunch of other kids. And now everything is shut down. So they can't go on visits. They can't make quality choices. And now he got an opportunity at Oregon and he's like, I should probably take that one. And granted, he doesn't know anything about Shug. He he just knows what people have told him. He knows that there's an open job and there's a guy who hasn't played. And it, it, it's not like it's that there's the hype surrounding him like it was like to attack of at Alabama. So he's like, oh, an opportunity. And I didn't. And my options are limited because of the coronavirus. So he took an opportunity. So I, I thought for him. Ultimately, it may be a bad move because Shug probably is already entrenched. He knows the system, all of this. He played a little bit. But in Oregon's history, all their all their transfers have played, have started. You got Achilles Smith, but he turned out to be a, a, a high draft pick. Vernon Davis and, um, and Dakota Prokop, even though he only started a couple games and Herbert started. So... History sort of says it, but not really. It's a different situation, different staff, all these things. And so I think for Anthony Brown, it sucks because he didn't get a chance to make the best decision possible. Because if you see after spring ball, 
and you're like, oh, this kid's clearly going to be the starter, then maybe I shouldn't go there. But for Oregon, I love it because they didn't have a whole lot of depth and experience at, in the room. So truthfully, whoever starts is going to be a good option because that means that you beat out a good player. Like if Anthony Brown starts, then I'm like, okay, uh, I don't I don't think he's a national championship caliber quarterback, but with their defense, you never know. And if Shug starts, that means you know that he beat out a good player who started multiple seasons and gotten better every year. That could prove like really, really good for Oregon. Yeah, and and maybe you know, honestly, maybe this kid's just built different. You know, because it, he was uh, he was interviewed on his decision and he just said, you know, there were no guarantees and I didn't want a program to tell me the starting job was mine anyway. So he, he just said that he wants a chance to compete. You know, a lot of people come out and say that, but not, they don't say things like the coaches never said anything about starting because you, you and I both know, and this happened at Arizona state when, they brought in Blake Barnett from Alabama to try to beat out Manny Wilkins. You know, Manny Wilkins, I think the story was Manny Wilkins just went out to eat at a restaurant um, in Scottsdale. And then he saw his offensive staff sitting with Blake Barnett, you know, uh, courting him. And he, he had to walk up to the table and say hi to everybody. Uh, and, and that we, he was getting that information from the first time. You know, those ASU coaches were saying, hey, come in and take this job. We don't have a lot of confidence. <laughs> in yep. in in Manny Wilkins, and that's part of the reason that they won him over, and he was able to come out to um, to ASU, and then he ended up getting beat by Manny Wilkins anyway. But the this whole thing feels a lot more like they told him the goal is national championship, and that he would have an opportunity to compete, and he weighed that and said, you know, if I lose, I lose, but I want to be around people who who want to win. And I, I think, I, I don't know. I think that's a healthy and good mindset to have. And plus, you, you know, you never know what, what could happen. You know, uh, yeah. Herbert went down um, at one point, you're always one hit away from, from missing time. So I don't know. I, I think it's a good move for Oregon. If nothing else, uh, they, they kept quite a few other schools from, from having, you know, depth at the quarterback position, including, you know, Georgia, Mississippi State, Colorado, Michigan State. They were all after him as well. And it's always fun to know that somebody messed over the two coaches that that uh, that left <laughs> the Pac-12 in uh, Mel Tucker and Mike Leach. And speaking of Mike Leach, how about our boy with, uh, with downtime oh, getting in news. trouble on Twitter again? Oh, so... Okay, so for you guys that don't don't know, Ralph, explain to them what 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 he did with the picture of the noose, right? Yeah, he um, you know he he he's basically just become like a. It's like he just discovered 4chan or something. He's getting memes from all of the internet and posting them on Twitter. It's good fun for a lot of people who don't take things too seriously. But he has gotten himself in trouble before. We criticized him pretty heavily for trashing the state of California when that's where he gets half his players from. Uh, while at while at Washington State, you know, basically calling it a dump and stuff. And then he, he made his entire team get off social media because he said it was a distraction for them. 
you know, meanwhile, he's the one that's constantly providing distractions um, and, and getting questions on, you know, whether he has any sense or not. He goes out to Mississippi State and he tweets what is what is on its surface um, to anybody who doesn't have any cultural attachment to the image of a, of a noose, <laughs> uh, something that might have been kind of humorous and like a woman that was like knitting a noose um, because she had to spend so much downtime around her husband um, because of the coronavirus. But it was his own players that were like, what in the hell? Like, this he isn't... Did, he hanging people the in the South in the isn't room. funny. Right. Yes. He, you are in the state of Mississippi. This is not Washington. Mississippi. There were still, there were still lynchings. In, going all up into the 90s, they still would, would find people lynched. They were, I think, the last state to to uh, according to their state laws abolish slavery literally like within the last decade so you're like come on come on bro come on like you he's too smart to not realize the temperature in the room because that's absolutely terrible uh speaking of terrible though i got a, a headline for you ralph tell me what your first reaction to this is okay Pac-12 announces pay cuts, layoffs, and strategy shifts in the age of coronavirus. So, we already talked about Larry Scott. Yeah. But uh, then there's the 10% cuts for the members of his senior staff that make at least $500,000 a year. So, as part of a new strategic and financial restructuring plan, they're going to lay off, well, they're expected to fire, well, lay off over a dozen employees. Um, they said the new strategic plan is designed to adapt our organization to the fiscal realities of the very rapidly changing media landscape and current uh, financial pressures brought on by COVID-19 crisis and set us up for a future of success. And uh, the plan is a culmination of comprehensive process conducted by Mark Shuckin, the president of the networks, myself and our leadership team in close consultation with our members and essential achieving. It is essential for achieving our goals set forth by our members. And uh, it's just um, it. He goes on to say that they're going to reduce the workforce by about eight percent. That includes hiring freezes across the conference and network divisions, studio shows canceled, all of this stuff, and all of that. And here's the, what's your reaction to that? I mean, I just, it's nice to know that someone there is thinking of strategies. (laughs) I just... You know, uh, I, at least that's something that they can control, you know, the, 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 the cuts that they make internally, because anything that they do that has to, that involves negotiating with any other party, you know, we, we don't exactly have a history of success, um, 
I don't know. You know, I'm I'm not in the building. I I don't know what it is that they are looking at um that that tells them that this is going to be what keeps them solvent over time. I can tell you that, you know, it it may, it might have been nice for them if they were ultimately able to negotiate uh, that deal that they had set their sights on and having a private equity investor oh, and maybe Rob, having that was a red herring. It wasn't happening. That was a lie. That Yeah, but I mean if they if they had that cash on hand, maybe people wouldn't be losing their jobs and 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 taking pay cuts right now. Or or maybe that those cuts would be even more ruthless because you have outside more business minded people that are actually policing what you should be doing with your money. So um <laughs> I'm I'm not sure. I'm I'm really not sure. I all all I know is that I don't I don't have the experience that they have and I can criticize Larry Scott um all day long for his leadership and I've often told you on this podcast uh that one of the reasons that I'm not okay with with Larry Scott being the head of the conference is I should never feel like I could do an equally poor job. Right. Like I, I know that if I was in that job, I do not have the experience that would <laughs> result in me being a successful Pac-12 commissioner. Um, but I should never feel like I could at least do as poorly as Larry Scott is doing. Right. So <laughs> like, that, there's, like there's no way I could do worse than him. So, yeah, that that's how I look at any position of leadership. If I see somebody in a position of leadership and I know that I would be completely incapable of doing that job, I should never feel like I'm on the same level as the person who does have that job. Nobody should be at my level of incompetence. That's always been my standard for criticizing other people in positions of leadership is, oh my God, I could have done that poorly. <laughs> you know? And so uh, I don't know it, what it, it is that they're looking at. And I'm I'm not inside. I know that I I personally feel like this is something that I would probably screw up. And um and all I can do right now is just trust that they have better information than I do and are, are making choices that hopefully um keep some people in their positions. Cause that's really the only thing I care about right now is you know, there are people who work under Larry Scott to keep this whole circus going and they work very earnestly and they work very hard and they provide uh, service for us that allows us to talk about the things that are going on in this conference. And I don't think that their um, efforts should get lost in the mix and they have to be experiencing a ton of anxiety right now on whether or not um, there's even going to be something there for, for them to do whatever they can do to keep people in place, save their jobs and allow them to feed their families um, is something that, that that I'm all for. But at the end of the day, I just don't know what it is they're looking at. I don't know what their projections are. I don't know, you know what they're expecting as far as an overall dip uh, in revenue. And a lot of these people who are experiencing this anxiety are also dependent on Larry Scott to go out and do his job. Bingo. And if he hasn't been able to build up this network and, and to to a point of health that would have made their lives easier uh, to this point, I'm not sure that they can have confidence in him to steer the ship, you know, when things are actually really getting stormy. But we have no choice but to find out how, what's going to happen with him at the helm. 
I love what you said there about the level of incompetence. It, it's almost like a wins above replacement model where, where uh, you're like, okay, what is, what is Larry Scott's wins above replacement in terms of just an average uh, of, of an average uh, commissioner or even an average educated person? I mean, like it's the reason it's the reason people hate called third strikes, right? Because I'm, I, I could have stood up there and not swung the bat yeah. <laughs> and walked back. Like, try at least, you know, yeah. if, if if it's within the box, take a swing. Nobody likes to really feel like they are, uh, like that they could screw things up, you know, in, in the same, at the same level that the people who are in charge are, um, are doing it. And I, I, I just think this, that. Ralph. I'm still in this. <laughs> So you're gonna hear me one day on on an interview saying this like it like it it's my own like I came up with this and I I may give you credit I may not I'm just telling you right right now this was this was very smart. Um, but Larry Scott went on to say, given the financial pressures on the campuses, increasing the surplus for the network became a higher priority, and that we recognize that cable and satellite subscription base keeps decreasing. Hmm. So there would be financial pressures on the network under any circumstances. So while while all the points that you made are valid, I take it even backwards. I granted you you can't always go back and fix stuff in the past, but you can learn from the past to make better decisions for the future. Here is my problem. L- you're laying off 12 people or potentially more. Larry Scott's salary is $5.3 million. If he had a regular ass salary, you wouldn't need to do that. If you weren't paying by far an uh, absorbent rent in one of the, in the, like either the highest or second highest, the either New York or San Francisco real estate market in the entire country. And you're right in the city. Stupidly. Like what kind of sense does that make? Like you're paying this absorbent rent ridiculous salaries and then you got to lay off people talking about you're not being fiscally responsible no those things are what aren't fiscally responsible like so you're actually going to have hard-working people probably making less than a hundred thousand dollars fired laid off because you say you have to be fiscally responsible why don't you move the headquarters to somewhere that is fiscally responsible? Why don't you pay the commissioner a reasonable salary? Com- commensurate with his level in college football. Commensurate with the other commissioners. And not try to have a, a him do two jobs when he can't do two jobs. He can't do one job right. Yeah, I'm off I my mean, soapbox. Wh- well, what we could be seeing here is we could ultimately be seeing a market correction right like living large is a liability living large is a luxury and uh, think about think about those bears that are up in alaska that can just depend on the salmon run right to go and be able to gorge themselves so that they can hibernate but what if you know what if one year those salmon don't come then that change that changes everything right like they all of a sudden you ha- you have to scramble for resources in order to just be able to live. Nah, don't worry about living your life the way that you live your life. 
right? And that's so the, the Larry Scott makes over five million dollars a year. They pay over four million dollars a year in rent. Well, all of a sudden, those salmon that they didn't show up. They didn't show up this year, and so that fall, that's it's much more dramatic than if you were just living fiscally responsible in the first place. You know, I always think of, um, I always think of a line from, I'm I'm not sure which Batman movie it was, but it's the one that had uh, Anne Hathaway in it as Catwoman when she's dancing with Bruce Wayne. And she says, there's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne, and you and your friends are going to wonder how you lived so large for so long and left so little for the rest of us, right? Anytime that there is any type of adversity, uh, there are definitely people all over the financial spectrum who are going to suffer, but no one falls as far and as hard as the people who's, you know, who were living as large as they were, you know, there are people that are hand to mouth right now that this economic anxiety that everybody is experiencing, that's their daily life, right? That is their, that is their daily life. Um, but there's definitely going to be people that, that, that were new to it or, or that are new to it. And it, you know, if this goes on for longer, it gets even worse than it is. You know, think about it. Larry Scott is making a two hundred and seventy thousand dollar sacrifice to his massive salary. Meanwhile, other people are completely losing their jobs altogether. He really hasn't taken the brunt of any of this yet. He has done a really good job of sort of insulating himself and protecting himself. Oh yeah, you know, it, it's the other people whose shoulders he sits upon that are falling away. And at some point he's going to realize he was dependent upon those people for the protections that he is afforded. Yep. Eventually yep. it's going to get to him too. And so, you know, you, you would like to believe that you would have somebody in a position of leadership that understands that everybody needs that cushion, not just you. And I feel like for the most part, this guy has done the absolute best job of looking out for himself and, uh, and, and not a whole lot of other people. Yeah, the University of uh, um, Michigan, I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah, sorry, the University of Minnesota, the Regents, they met, they met and discussed the impact of COVID-19 on the institutions, and they said that uh, Gopher Athletics could lose between $10 million to $75 million, depending on what happens with COVID, like through the best case scenario, through spring, they'll lose $10 million from tickets, NCAA and TV contributions, all this stuff, because the teams get paid out $1.3 million from, they would have gotten $1.3 from March Madness, plus how deep people go, then there's, you know, other re- revenues that come in. Moderate, if it goes into summer, $30 million. Into fall, seventy-five million, because because they're already gonna lose, uh, like tuition money. It there's they're not gonna lose any tuition money through the spring, but summer lose tuition money. Fall, then there's housing, athletics, investment earnings, study abroad fees, event cancellation, clinical income. Dude, they're so like schools could be like financially devastated if they're 
if this drags on into summer and also the fall. The fall would be a, an unmitigated disaster. So it is important to get everything together and take take your medicine now. Think about, I just think about how many more opportunities for Mike Leach to make serious mistakes there will be if this drags on into the, <laughs> into the summer or the mind. fall. Idle, did you see, idle hands. Did you see that he's lost players over this? Are you serious? No. Oh, yeah. Two of his players have entered the transfer portal over his tweets. Wow. Two of them. Uh, Fabian Lovett, who was one of the people who quote tweeted in the in the beginning and just wrote uh, WTF, his dad said that's one of the reasons that he's, he's bouncing. And he announced that he was going to enter the transfer portal the very next day. And then uh, Brevin Jones, who is one of their better uh recruits i believe has a bunch of eligibility left um he's moving on as well you know he was a he was only a three star offensive tackle but he was one of those guys 65 260 great frame um and he's already heard from everybody right uh, because yeah. everybody's in need of offensive linemen so yeah, <laughs> if this goes into the summer or the fall mike leach might chase half the roster that would be insane. But the but the problem is they don't really a lot of them don't really have a lot of places to go, which brings us to the high school kids. High school kids are being impacted and so are colleges. So uh, a lot of people don't always know that uh, how big of a deal ACT and SAT scores factor into it, because if you don't have qualifying scores, you you, you got to go to JUCO. But there are a fair number of kids, not not a lot, especially not the ones who who signed in the winter, because pretty much all of those kids are qualifiers. But the kids who sign in the spring, some of them are on the cusp of qualifying. So they needed SAT or ACT scores, and they had another four or five times to take the test between between like February and when, when school got out, May, June, another four or five times. Now all of those are wiped out, banished. UCs have already said that they're not taking uh, SAT scores or ACT scores, factoring that in for fall applications. So that may, you know, make room for kids who either took it or um, or like we talk, talked about, like Cal and UCLA may be able to get different kids in the program. Uh, and Gerald's going to talk about that and speak to that, too, in a few minutes. But that's crazy. Like, what do these high school kids like? Because there's no way the NCAA gets all of this right, Ralph. There's no way they get the the uh, seniors getting the extra year of eligibility, getting the scholarship counts right getting these high school players right, getting the money. I mean, like, there's no way an institution who regularly does things to kick athletes in the balls gets all of these things right. Well, think about this. Think about all the people who have filed appeals for health reasons of saying, like, hey, my dad has a heart condition. I want to play closer to home. And the NCAA has said, oh, well, you have to sit out a year. It doesn't matter to us. Uh, what are you going to do when you have an influx of of 150 extra 
um, student athletes who say, Hey, my family has been adversely affected by coronavirus. I want to play closer to home. Do you treat them like you treated the, the people whose parents had heart conditions and cancer or all of a sudden, because this disease is something new and different, do you have to approve everybody across the board? Maybe does it build in a little bit of extra compassion for when people are dealing with, uh, family health issues? Yeah, that's a, that's a legit point. I mean, yeah, how do you handle all these waivers? Do you just blanketly approve them because you don't have time to, to like, you know, where you have the right to a speedy trial in real life? You have a right to, like, there are bylaws about how long uh, and rules about how long appeals can take, all of this. So they have to be done in a timely fashion. So it's a matter of, all right, like, how do you take care of all this? How do you take care of all this re- remotely? How do you get lawyers involved? I mean, there's so much stuff that affects it. And there's no way the NCAA gets all of this right. It's, it's, it, it, it would be hard for, um, you know, for Solomon to get them all right. So, right. So and I, NCAA, I would say this. The NCAA, mm. I would say this. They need to look back at the era of of Katrina and a lot of the exceptions that were made for um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of high school level student athletes of uh, of helping them reacclimate into different areas. Um, issues of domicile were up in the air. There was all sorts of nonsense that was going on. And any exception that was made for any of those kids at that time. You have to go back and 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 look at the fact that the world didn't stop turning, that football didn't end. You know, I I remember very vividly back then of, you know, some people would they they'd have some sort of outcry of oh Timmy moved into our district and all of a sudden, um, you know, there's a there's a six foot six wide receiver at this high school. Um, that's only there because of Katrina. What did this high school do to get them in there? And there'd be people saying, you know, this is unfair. This is unfair. And people would completely lose sight of the fact that like, Hey, Timmy had no intention of ever being at that school in the first place. And the only reason he's there is because his entire home washed away. So just get over it. Right. And so we're probably going to have to get to that point where we're callous with some of the people who want to bitch and whine and complain, about some of the accommodations that are made for some of these people, because it will adversely benefit some people who they don't want to have a benefit. Right. And so, but, but those benefits happened in the course of trying to accommodate a large group of people and the world didn't end. Nobody's life ended because, you know, we, we made exceptions and allowed for people to, to settle in, um, to certain places here or there while they were rebuilding their lives. And I think that, you know, some people are going to try to take advantage of the NCAA in this time because that's just human nature. Everybody is working um, to be a lobbyist for their own self-interest. And whatever exception you make for somebody else is an exception that somebody else is going to try to take advantage of. But the truth is you have to do a cost-benefit analysis and say what can benefit the most people, what is most fair to the most amount of people. And I think that when it comes down to people's health and being around their family, you have to allow um, for people to make those transitions. And if other people ultimately use it to their advantage to be able to play sooner, closer to home. So what? Oh, well, like that's that's the worst possible thing that that happened. Nobody's dying. No crimes are being committed. This isn't an issue of morality. 
It's an issue of fairness, and you're just going to have to swallow that pill. You're going to have to not think about what is and isn't fair for a while, because what is not fair is that there are people who are getting this disease and their entire lives are being upended. Yep. A hundred percent agree with you there. Um, what do you think about before we get to Gerald's interview? Lasting up, um, you you were the one who informed me about this that uh, Tyler Johnson from Arizona. What's going on with him? I'm sorry, from Arizona State. Uh, yeah, um, Tyler Johnson is a six foot four, two hundred and sixty pound athlete who can run the forty in about. Um, Four seven. He b- body wise um, and skill set wise is probably the closest thing um, that Arizona State has had to uh, uh, Terrell Suggs since he was um, since he was out there playing in the Pac-10. Uh, unfortunately, he has been very injury prone, and it has kept him away from ever really being part of an offseason program. Um, and he, he's somebody that I'm a little bit closer to. And he told me that when he saw Herm Edwards get a knee replacement, he looked at that and he was like, man, I do not want that to be me. And so he made up his mind. Um, and, and I think part of it was just playing in a three, three, five anyway, and only getting about seven or eight reps a game all on third down, just saying, go get the quarterback. Right. Um, and so I think he looked at that and he said, you know, this isn't worth me having to change out my knees in my, in my late fifties, early sixties. And so he just decided to medically retire. And the entire time Antonio Pierce is like, I'm going to get you back. I'm going to get you back here. And Antonio Pierce was telling anybody who would listen that he was going to convince Tyler Johnson to uh, come out of medical retirement, rejoin this team. Well, now all of a sudden Marvin Lewis is running this defense and they're going to have to transition to a four, three and, uh, and Tyler Johnson is no longer going to have to be a linebacker. They can just go and put him on the edge um, and 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 have him be a permanent edge rusher. And so I think they, they've been running that by him. Uh, and, you know, he, he's in a position where he did miss what they had of spring practice again. Uh, but he's just such a gifted, a naturally gifted athlete um, that they they figure they'll find a way to make it work because they've been finding a way to make it work, even though he hasn't really done a full off-season w- workout program in his entire time at Arizona State anyway. So he has two years of eligibility left, and they think that they can take him in those two years and turn him into a legit NFL prospect, like his dad, uh, Bill Johnson, who played for uh, the Buffalo Bills, I believe, among others. Um, and so, yeah, so that's that that that's the plan for him and it'll be really interesting to see if it makes a difference because that's where Arizona State is the most thin is on the defensive line and he really is he's a really special talent i'm going to send you his highlights from high school george he was their punter punt returner and kick returner at 64260 and they also played him at wideout linebacker and running back oh wow yeah and most of his offers were for tight end but he yeah. had never actually played tight end. Uh, so when he when he uh, ultimately got the offer from Arizona State to go in and play linebacker, that's what he decided to do. Um, but yeah, that that'll be interesting for them um, because you know that that if Arizona State has one hurdle to challenging, I believe USC for the Pac-12 South, it is that defensive line. Um, because they're going to be playing guys who played on the outside of a three-three-five, uh, like Jermaine Lole. They're going to be moving them inside, and that that'll they'll be kind of undersized for 
uh, for that in a, in a four, three. And I can see some teams out there, you know, going out and trying to really, um, force the issue and run the ball on, on ASU. Um, and so to be, to be able to fortify that defensive line is maybe the one thing that they can do to, I, I personally believe USC has one year left in them before they really fall off the cliff. And, uh, and so if, if ASU is going to challenge USC, they need a pass rush to do it. Yeah, it's a matter of, I think with USC, you're looking at, you know, as soon as Slovis is gone, you could have a problem. It's going to be tough to be really bad when you have a really good quarterback like Slovis. So, yeah, so I think that they'll be all right. But I do think that they are, you know, that they are going to be having diminishing returns, especially in two years when that... Uh, when those when those back to back recruiting classes are expected to be starters <clears throat> or high impact players, that's going to be tough because they're going to be short on those for sure. Um, now it is time. Um, I was able to interview Gerald Alexander the other day. Um, he is the Miami Dolphins defensive backs coach. He is, he was the Cal defensive backs coach. He's part of that Justin Wilcox staff that took. And the worst defense in college football and made them into a very, very stout and respectable defense that Washington couldn't score on, that Washington State had trouble with as well. They shut Mike Leach down as well. So uh, and he talks to us about all sorts of sorts of things. Listen in. We got Coach Gerald Alexander in the building. Not only is he a coach, not only is he a former NFL player, but he also happens to be a friend of mine. You were able to get the Arkansas State undergrad assistant, then the Washington grad assistant, and then you've uh, interned with Titans, the Buccaneers, like you said, and then were the defensive back coach at Indiana State, then went to Montana State, to Cal, and now with the Dolphins in 10 years. Well, in less than 10 years. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's a lot of moving around and you have Mm -hmm. a family, a growing family, kids, like how has that impacted your, your family? And I know for, for me, I could never get into coaching because I can't, I'm not willing to make that sacrifice. So what, Mm -hmm. what does it take to make that sacrifice and how has it been for you? I think it takes a, a, a great and understanding wife, you know, for, um, all the things and the challenges, because, you know, fortunately, I've been on kind of the, the, the better end of the moving and the picking up and, and, and being in a different area. I mean, I have, uh, you know, there's there's two kind of coaches. There's the ones that are hired and the ones that are fired, you know, and I haven't I haven't gotten to a situation where that was the case yet. But um, I think with an understanding wife and, and the, the, the amount of time that we're away as football coaches, um, especially as college football coaches, just being on the road and recruiting and. Um, doing all those things and 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 making sure that home is home is still is, is still being held down, you know, especially with with us um, and our family and, and and the amount of kids we have and, and what what my wife does with the kids and um, you know and then one day saying hey this phone call just changed our life and we're picking up and moving you know and 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 be good with that you know and just have an understanding of what's what's uh, what's to come and 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 all of that and so it's a uh, you know, it, it's our life, you know, it's our life that, that, that we've accepted. We, we, we know what it is and um, we understand and, and she understands the role that she plays. And, you know, I just try to do the best that I can to support her. And obviously she does the same. 
how much, uh, I guess, a, as a man, as the wage earner, as the like, you have a high responsibility to make sure that you're not slacking off at work, that you're putting the best, like not only trying to win, but you got to try to win for your family, too. So what is your ultimate motivators like? Because like, I know that there's more than one for you being great at, at, at your job. Is it your family? Is it winning? Like, how do those things balance into each other well i think for me man it's it's really it's it's the process you know i want to be the best teacher that i can be i want to be able to give the information um to the players that's going to help them do the things that they are capable of doing and some and ultimately that results in winning you know i don't necessarily thinking about winning as a result because winning is a process you know that before the scores are even lit up on the board um there's so many things that go into the preparation that that leads to winning, you know, and, and so that's really my motivation. I think that's uh, I think that's every coach's motivation. I can't speak for everybody, but uh, I think that's my motivation, you know, and, and not necessarily. You no, know, of course, I'm motivated by my family and um, I want to do good by them and I want to do good by uh, the people who are putting me in, in the responsibility to be able to develop a unit. Uh, but for me, every day, it comes down to being uh, a great teacher, uh, uh, a great motivator, and doing what I need to do to get the information to the guys so they can um, so they can succeed on the field. And ultimately, that would result into uh, into wins. And even if, you know, even if unfortunately we do uh, maybe everything right and, and, and it's from a prep- preparation standpoint and, you know, hey, we go out through competition and we don't win that game. Um, being able to take that information that we got, whether it be from a win, win or a loss, and then just try to improve on that and just just trying to improve every single day and that takes care of itself in regards to everything else, big picture wise, whether it be the motivation of family winning um, and all the things that come into this business. Well, you talked about the preparation, doing all, doing all the things the right way doesn't necessarily yield necessarily the results that you always want, but it's about the process. And I, I saw that a lot at Cal when you were the defensive back coach at Cal and also under Justin Wilcox, who I played with at the University of Oregon. And I loved the way that you guys played. You guys played hard, no matter the adversity. And last year, you guys were on a row. What, what, what were you guys, four or five, five and oh, then Chase Garbers, your quarterback, he goes down. And, and I thought you guys were going to lose every game after that. But the team just kept fighting and fighting and staying in games. And and then you had – then Garbage was able to come back. You win some, get to a bowl game. I, t- t- tell me about and tell the people about what it was like building Cal from what, what you guys picked it up from, which was one of the worst defenses in the whole country or the worst defense in the whole country, to building it up to where you left it. I think it all started with the, uh, the leadership, you know, and what, what Justin wanted. Um, in regards to just everything that we talked about from the very beginning, how he wanted the guys to play, um, how he wanted them to work, the behaviors that he wanted to set within the culture. Um, and ultimately, again, that process was going to lead to uh, the victories on the field, you know, and the belief, you know, depending on uh, n- no matter the circumstances, uh, being able to battle through adversity, uh, no matter what. And, and get the results that, that we strive for and we work for. And, and again, they may not always necessarily be ideal situations that we're dealing with. Obviously, losing a starting quarterback, um, you know, as you're going through, you know, at the time, an undefeated season, um, right before conference play, really the thick of conference play. Uh, it, you know, it's not ideal, but it's, not, it's also not an excuse. 
you know, and we know that, you know, the next, the next man has to, has to step up and, and we got to pick up the slack and, and, and just, you know, seeing how those guys played, whether it be that year or the year prior, or even the very first year, you know, it was just uh, building blocks on top of a, of a long process when you're just trying to build a program, um, kind of win with the guys that you basically accumulated through the first year and um, starting to set the trend and starting to set the culture for the guys that are going to be returning over the course of time, as well as adding additional talent and really trying to to get the thing rolling um, in the direction that you want to. And I, and I look forward to seeing how those guys are able to do, um, obviously, post my departure, because I know how the thing was built. Well, you you have a lot of sayings that uh, that uh, you talk about, but I want to talk about where you said the that that you win with your guys and all this stuff. So there are some coaches who believe that they recruit uh, um, our our kind of guys, and some guys that they they recruit you no matter red flags, anything, history, because these are high school students, and, and all they want is talent. Like when you are a coach, how much do you think that that like that our kind of guy that a certain type of kid who's good in school or 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 perfect character this or that where do you, where do you draw the balance in a kid that you ideally would would recruit with no like school limitations like it's different a kid you can recruit at Arkansas State than you can recruit at Cal than you can recruit it at Alabama so if you were at the highest level of school what kind of kid would you recruit like who's a perfect kid I think you got to recruit, obviously, a talented guy, you know, a talented guy that's really uh, that's motivated. I think the number one thing, especially when you start talking about college athletics and, and obviously the attention that goes into recruiting, you got to really be able to find a kid that loves football. You know, a, a lot of guys fall in love with the recruiting process and the attention that it gives them and the pop- popularity that it gives them. Um, and, and we all know, and, and you being a former player as well, that, you know, once that's over, that's over. And, and it's hard. You know, it's hard to be a, a successful college football player. Um, there's a lot of sacrifices that you have to make. Um, it's very hard work. And, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of time, you know, and I, I used to tell guys when I was recruiting them all the time, you know, hey, you have, you know, 12, 12 games a year, uh, four years, man, you got 48 guaranteed opportunities um, outside of any conference championships or bowl game, but 48 guaranteed Saturdays or, or game day competitions that you're going to play. And there's a lot of time between those 48 opportunities that you're going to play um, in order to be able to uh, perform. You know, there's a lot of practice time. There's a lot of uh, time outside of the building, time outside of our meeting, time outside of the required work for you to be able to go out here and be as successful as you want to be on the football field. And that takes a lot of time and it's going to be hard. You're not going to come in right away and be exactly who you were when you just left high school. And so a lot of guys, that's hard. You know, even the, even the most talented individuals in the country that's a hard pill to swallow. And a lot of those guys, they don't necessarily uh, flourish in those kind of competitive environments because we're trying to get a, a lot of different talented guys. So I think for the simplest way I can put it, man, you got to find guys who love ball. You got to find guys who love football. Um, you got you to find guys who, who, who love uh, the competition of it um, and, and everything about it. And at that point, you know you got a guy that you can develop and build around um, who's coachable, who listen. Um, as long as you give them the right relevant information, they'll try to continue to improve. And, you know, I think that's your plus one when you're looking at a, a, at a prospect um, in high school or really, obviously, you know, where, where I am today, you got to find guys who love the game. Yeah, well, y- you you have some famous quotes <laughs> and I love one of the best ones I love is that 
that you say to kids uh, and you put it out on Twitter, not, not just to your own kids, you say stars can't save you. Right. I can't. Can, can you explain that concept? Well, I think, you know, everybody has, uh, you know, a status, you know, going in, you know, the, whether you're the five star kid or the or the walk on kid um, or the first round draft pick or the undrafted free agent. You know, everybody comes into maybe their their level uh, or even the even the Pop Warner all star, you know, and, and, the, and the kid that you know, barely even played because he just was too small or too slow or too big and, and Pop Warner, and now they enter high school. You know, on the field at that point, there's nothing, your status can't save you. You know, it, football is the, is the ultimate, ultimate team sport where nothing can save you outside of your one-on-one matchup. You know, one of the things that I always think about is, um, you know, there's no I in team, but there's I in wins. You know, and that, that win has to do with individual performances, is being able to win, win your matchup, win with effort, and win with technique Ooh. at that point, and so Ooh, you know there's there's that. nothing that can there's nothing that can tell there's nothing that can save you in that regard as far as your status coming in. You know, you win with your individual performance, and those stars can't save you. I love that, dude. There's no I in team, but there's an I in win. I love that. Um, and and another and another one. I forgot what the exact quote is, but it's the one where you say that rent is due. What mm-hmm. what what's what's that one? Well, that was the uh, the one that came out. I mean, I think JJ Watt or somebody said it. You know, it's like uh, you know everybody you know everybody pays rent, you know, or, or mortgage or something like that. And and at the end of the day, success um, success is a, is not owned. You know, you gotta you you lease success. You know, and, and rent is due every single day. So if you're not putting in the work, if you're not doing what you need to do to be successful then you might not necessarily make rent that day. And that means that somebody might have moved into your spot, you know? And so that's, that's kind of where that came from. And again, just, you know, given, you know, that's the responsibility of the coach, man. And sometimes you gotta, sometimes it goes beyond the information of the playbook and, and, and just putting maybe some, some things into perspective. Maybe it's just for, for that three hours of practice that, you know, you need the guys to push through, you know, and maybe the middle of camp or it might be a, you know, it might be right before a game to give them, you know, to give them something else, you know, just to give them a little, a little bit of, a little bit of a nugget where, you know, hey, you know, this, this, this makes sense. It's just a different analogy to say the same thing, man. Hey, we got to go out here and put in the work in order to get what we want. I, I, I always believe that co- that teams kind of take their take on a little bit of the personality and position groups of the people who coach them, and mm-hmm. and that. When you see a team that's undisciplined, I believe that that's a coaching issue that mm-hmm. that that you that you can have kids who don't necessarily or players in general who don't necessarily have the physical capabilities to do what other guys can, but they can be on time they can they can not jump off sides, they cannot commit stupid penalties all that I always think that that's a coaching issue. Where do you stand on that um I think you're a hundred percent right i mean there's there's very very few times where you have players who uh, will just go rogue and do things outside of the framework of what they're being taught. Um, but I think that you can tell a lot about a team um, and how they play, how, how individuals, not necessarily individuals, just, but, but collectively, how guys perform. Um, and it may not necessarily be um, things that result into points. You know, it might be just how hard guys play, um, how hard guys run down on kickoff. You know, one of the things that you, know, you can always tell about a team um, how hard the guys run down on kickoff, 
how hard they come and try to block an extra point after giving up a touchdown, um, how hard their receivers block on the perimeter, you know, just different things and that may not necessarily um, be glorifying to the individuals that are actually putting in that work, but you can see a, a lot about a team and, and sometimes those things. And that's one of the things that I always wanted to do with, with my guys, um, the guys that I coach at the collegiate level, and I don't think that's going to change um, h- here where I'm at currently. But, um, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do at Cal was, was set a culture, you know, set a standard um, and, and make that be the lead standard that the rest of the team would follow, uh, whether it be how we practice, how we prepared, how we competed, um, you know, how obviously we played out on the field, uh, how we communicated, how we, how we did things off the field, the chemistry that we had. Um, the standard that we held ourselves to. Um, and ultimately that would lead into having some success on the field. And then hopefully um, that that success would spread like wildfire to the rest of the team um, through all the things that we did um, really prior to the performance that people saw on Saturday, you know, and, and that was one of the things that, you know, those guys, um, those guys laid a great foundation, the guys that I was able to coach and uh, I was fortunate enough to, to, you know, to earn their trust, you know, at the end of the day, just because I'm their coach, doesn't mean that I don't have to earn their trust um, into what I'm asking these guys to do because what, what we're asking them to do as coaches um, is hard. You know, it's, it's hard to practice hard every single day. It's hard to push through on individuals and run through the football and, um, and, and try to strip the ball and finish, finish the way we want the guys to finish and create those habits in order to, to, to perform greatness on Saturdays or Sundays or whenever you're asking guys to play. Um, it takes a lot of sacrifice and, and a lot of belief to do that. And then when you have your players believing in it and then now they start to hold each other accountable to the same standard where now you as a coach, you, you know that the foundation is laid where now your older guys are telling the younger guys, this is how we do things here. This is not how we do it. And, and now they're starting to believe it so much that they're starting to, they're starting to teach it. And so now, um, now you know you've laid a great foundation and now um, you can build on that as you continue to build your, your unit or your program. Uh, now I want to move on to the recruiting aspect of things because it, it seems like like coaches in college football have to trend younger now because the recruiting has changed. Like it's not just coach showing up at your high school, flashing his flashing his card, flashing his, the, the logo on his chest. Now you got to be in the in the DMs. You got to be sending out sub tweets. You got to be doing. I mean, on these phones. Like, what is it like recruiting kids? The, what you you know when you were at Arkansas State you saw it in 2013 till your last season at Cal what what how has the recruiting process changed and what is it like from start to finish when you recruit a kid uh, from just from the overall landscape you know you really have to tap into the way that these kids communicate now and that's through um, you know through social media whether it be Instagram or uh, TikTok or Twitter or whatever, you know, I mean, you have to, you have to reinvent yourself. A lot of guys who have been in this this coaching game have kind of seen this thing evolve over the last, let's say 20 years. You know, if you, if you, if you put in that time, um, you see how the, the, the house phone is no longer, you're not calling the house phone no more. You're getting these kids right on their cell. Um, You know, they got it with them, you know, and and you know that they check, check it all the time. And so you got to continue to be active and it's, you know, recruiting is very competitive. Um, you know, from the overall start to start to finish of things, um, you know, obviously you find a kid who who you feel like has the tools for you to be able to develop. And, and sometimes, you know, they they are not a finished product by no stretch of the imagination. 
Um, I personally used to look for specific traits because from where I was, um, I wasn't going to get the, the, the top rated recruit at, at Cal. Um, it just wasn't going to happen, you know, not, not due to a lack of effort. Um, sometimes they weren't attracted to what we can offer them, you know, at Cal, whether it be the location or the academics or, or in some, in some respects, even playing on the West coast and playing in the PAC 12. A lot of kids want to maybe go to other places, maybe go down into the South and, 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 you know, some of the quote unquote bigger schools, um, you know, but just starting to build a relationship with them. And usually I, I, I try to be as very, very transparent as I could. Um, and just let the guys know, you know, hey, this is going to be a hard process. You know, my biggest thing, my selling point uh, for me personally is about the development, you know, about the development of you as a player. Um, you know, what you are right now is a, is a good tool. Here's how I see where you can improve. Here's how we're going to use you. Here's my vision for you. Um, but best believe you're not going to be promised anything. You know, you're going to be a guy that's going to come in and compete. And, you know, that's what we want. This is why we, we're recruiting you. You have to love the competition part of it because, that's exactly what you're going to do. You're not going to be handed anything other than an opportunity to go and compete, um, you know, and just try to teach them the game along the process where that was my biggest thing as far as separating myself is teaching, teaching well, guys the game of football. Oh, okay, how, how many phone calls from beginning to like, like, so like, uh, let's say that you have a kid, you can start calling them when, when, when they're after their sophomore year is over, right? Something like that. Yeah. But, or you can start but, having but, the conversations before, with them. Yeah, but like you can see them before that at school and stuff like that if you if you have another kid there. But like how many phone calls is this? Like what time of day is this? Like I don't think a lot of people understand how much work goes into you were known as an elite recruiter. Like there are people who recruit kids. Yeah, it's, it's easier to recruit if you have, you know, Alabama – USC on your jersey, on your shirt or whatever. But, but even then, like, it's still a dog fight for kids, but like, how many phone calls is this? Like, what is it like talking to these parents, you, you know, college, their high school coach, like what goes into that? There's plenty of man hours, plenty of man hours as far as talking to the kid, um, continuing to keep a relationship, um, with them, talk to them about whatever, whatever's going on their game that previous week. Um, just, just, just staying, just staying active in the kid's life, you know, and uh, talking to parents, talking to the significant uh, people in their lives that's going to obviously be able to help them throughout this process and, and help them with their decision. Um, at the end of the day, high school coaches, uh, seven on seven coaches. Um, there, there's a lot of, I mean, I can, I couldn't put a number on the amount of phone calls it takes. And, and usually that thing just starts to ramp up closer and closer. You get to the, the final decision, which is, you know, signing day. Uh, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of man hours uh, with each individual person, you know? So um, it's a lot of work, you know, obviously uh, it's the lifeblood of the program. It's the lifeblood of college football. Um, I'm only as good of a coach as the players that I'm able to have. Um, if they're not physically able to do the things that we require them to do, there's nothing that me as a coach I can do, you know, other than get, uh get you know better talented guys to be able to develop but uh, there's a lot there's a lot that goes into it and uh, it's it's the recruiting process for for really everybody and uh it, it's never ends so even when you have an uh, the signing day and you're celebrating uh you know accumulating the class that you just got you're already looking at the next one and the, and the one after that and the one after that so it's a never ending cycle
how is it so and the, the element has changed in terms of you actually have to recruit your own kids now too because they'll they'll leave in the transfer portal if things aren't going their way or whatever so it it has that changed in terms of recruiting your own players and did you do that or did you just say look here here's how we do things here's how i treat you i'm not treating you better because you're mad or or worse because you're mad how did you handle that well the plan time i always told the guys that's not up to me that's up to you you know i don't i don't really i don't set the the, the depth chart everybody in this room does based on their performance and yeah but it's politics know, every, coach it's politics right no there's i mean at least for me there was no politics listen man the, the the film will never lie. Period. The film will never lie. You know, I don't. I don't. Again, I don't care about the stars. I don't care if you're on scholarship. Hell, I had a guy who who's, who who was a walk on who's about to be drafted. You know, and so it doesn't really necessarily matter as far as um, all that's concerned. It's about when you get in here, um, who can who can do the things right, who can do the things. Cons- no, I would say more so who can do the things that we need to get done consistently, because there's always going to be a you know one of those talented guys and. and or even not so talented, they'll have a they'll have a you know a splash play here or there. But you know, on, on top of that splash play, they'll mess up three or four times. It's like, well, I can't even trust to put you in the game because of yeah, you're talented, but you don't do the things consistent consistently well. I think that's what everybody needs and everybody wants is, is somebody who's going to be consistently out there. That's how sometimes some of the more uh, talented guys on the roster may not necessarily be playing. Um, above maybe one of the more, let's say, heralded recruits that are that that maybe just got to the program, um, you know, it's because that hey, this guy does things consistently well or consistently better. Um, yeah, you have you know, and, and that's that's the work that guys have to have um, in order to 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 be successful. Like I said earlier, you know, it's it's hard. You know, there's a you know, you're learning a different playbook, you're learning different terminology, you're learning different techniques, um, you're learning different things. Yeah, you may be physically talented, and that probably has never changed. But ultimately, you have to be able to adapt and get your game equivalent to what we needed to be at this particular level on a consistent basis. And so there's no politics in this game. There really isn't. As much as people want to use that as a crutch um, and an excuse for the most part, um, at the end of the day, man, the player, we, we, pl- coaches don't get paid to not play good players. That makes sense. I, and and that, granted, like sometimes – there's a relationship where they may not like each other for whatever reason. But at the end of the day, pretty much all coaches, they don't want to get fired. They want to win games. So they're they're going to try to play the best and most consistent players possible. Um, there is a new uh, thing that just came out because of COVID, uh, because of the coronavirus that's affecting recruiting. And I think it's going to have a positive impact on Cal and UCLA in particular. So the article just came out that said that the uh, the UC system is going to ease admission requirements. So no SAT, no minimum grades due to coronavirus. And can you tell us, like, because I don't think that everybody fully understands that getting into, that going to UCLA or going to Cal, getting into those schools, is it's it's different than going to Arizona. It's different than going to Arizona State, Utah, Oregon, Oregon State. Like, it's it's just different, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's totally different. You know, as far as the academic requirements that um, 
that you need in order to even to even pursue a recruit, let alone get them in the school and all of that stuff. There's just so many kids that um, we would not have had the opportunity to recruit even if we wanted to. Um, and just because of academic performance. And, and sometimes it works itself out because, you know, they would not have fit into the culture of Berkeley anyway, you know, and, and that may um, that may have already just kind of ran its course. And so just with this whole thing that you're just telling me about, I think that um, it, 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 you can think about it in two ways. Uh, and I'm just speaking for Cal because I've been there and I'm not sure how they're operating, um, but just specifically thinking about this news in regards to if I just heard it and I was in that seat. Um, this is our green light to recruit whoever we want, you know, as far as um, not worrying about the admissions part and getting the, you know, getting a certain kid in with a certain GPA, certain test score. All right. Hey, it's, it's wide open. We can cast a bigger net, but I think you also got to be careful with maybe getting the quote unquote wrong kid. And what I mean by that is again, everything is about fit. You know, Berkeley is a good fit for certain people. Um, Eugene is a good fit for certain people, you know, uh, Tempe, you know, all these places are special places in their own right. But again, it's all about fit. And so even though you might be able to cast a bigger net and maybe get the get the guy who's got the lower GPA than that you couldn't get in a certain certain year prior, you know, be prior to this uh, COVID thing. Um, who's to say that that kid, just because he can get in the school now because the floodgates are open, is going to be successful in Berkeley academically. And so you still got to, you know, you, you got to weigh that into consideration, even though, hey, you know, we can probably hit this window that we may not necessarily be able to hit. You still got to find the right guy. You still got to find the right kid. What are some of the metrics that go into the academic standard? Because people just think that college is just, oh, yeah, this kid is great. Let's let's get him in. It doesn't matter what his grades are, what school looks like. Yeah, we can just get him in. It doesn't matter. Um, I, I can't speak for, again, I can speak for everybody else. I know Cal, we had a, you know, guys had to be hovering around the 3.0 and, and, and maybe four digits on the, on the, uh, on the SAT score. And so you had to be uh, a, a pretty well-rounded academic uh, performer in order to be justified and being able to recruit you and get you in the school and know that you can handle the, 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 the academic challenges that is going to UC Berkeley. And so, um, but I think that, yeah, you, I mean, at the end of the day, at this point, this is, this is a window of opportunity for us to be able to maybe recruit some of the talented individuals that we may not have the opportunity to recruit um, due to these circumstances that we deal with on a day to day. And so 100%, I think at the end of the day, you got to look at it twofold. You got to look at, okay, here's, here's an opportunity for us to maybe, to maybe recruit a talented kid uh, that we may not have the opportunity to recruit outside of this, but Again, you have to make sure that it's the right fit. And, I, and knowing, um, knowing the leadership there, knowing, knowing how coach operates um, and what he wants in his program, I wouldn't see him thinking about it any less. And, um, I want to talk specifically about the Pac-12 because I am a Pac-12 guy, but I am nervous about the future of the conference as it relates to financials because the, the writing is on the wall to me. They, we uh, we are last in terms of revenue generation. Uh, so that means that coaches can get paid less. That means that coaches can get poached easier. We just saw two Pac-12 coaches. Uh, we just saw uh, Mel Tucker leave uh, Colorado for a big bag of money at Michigan State. And well, not not just a big bag of money, but more resources, all of that. Same thing with Mike Leach at Washington State going down to 
a, a what what is truly a bottom tier team in the in the SEC, like one one of the lower in terms of prestige in football, like leave to go there because of money and resources. So it's like I'm nervous about the future. What do you what's your take on that on the status of the Pac-12? I mean, there's a there's a lot to that. I'm not real familiar just with I mean, I know that certain places have there's haves and have nots. I mean, that's that's life, you know, and, and that's kind of life in college football right now. And, um, you know, you would hope that there's certain things that they have planned in order to be able to level the playing field. But, you know, that's a uh, that's a little too deep for the things that I paid attention to when I was in the Pac-12. Well, the, well, on the on, on the recruiting as aspect of it, have you noticed that kids are more willing to leave the, the California footprint and say, nah, 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 they the, um, the the media or whoever tells me that the that is better ball being being played east of the Mississippi. I think that's all due to perception. I don't think that, that has to do with the uh, the resources as far as that that's concerned. The kids aren't reaping the benefit of, of that. You know, it's not like. You know they're doing. They're motivated by the quote unquote money because they're they're they not they're not or they say shouldn't uh, be getting any any of that. And so a lot of it has to do with just their generational view of what the what 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 is quote unquote big time. You know the SEC obviously using that as an example. Um, very well respected football conference, especially with the you know some of the successes they've had in the in the national championship field. Um, you know, and, and just the perception of maybe some other schools as far as, you know, the Ohio States and the Michigans and, and some of the kids specifically on the West Coast, you know, they look at that as, hey, that's a bigger opportunity. That's a bigger deal. That's a bigger stage. Um, what I used to always say, hey, man, they, they play on the same 100-yard field, same dimension, same number, same same everything, you know, and, and it's not like um, those specific places are going to get you closer to being able to play on Sunday. I mean, there's there's guys that, you know, I mean, you can be a Tijuana Tech and we're going to find you, you know, as long yep. as you can play. And so it doesn't that doesn't necessarily matter. But I think the the generational perception is, OK, I got to go. I want to go beyond the West Coast because that's a bigger deal, um, you know. But, you know, some guys want to stay home. Some guys want to stay on the West Coast. Some guys want to um, go to other places. You know, and at the end of the day, it's all about fit. And sometimes through through the transfer portal or the love and recruiting and what they feel like was a big deal. Um, they get there and they're like, man, this isn't what I thought it was. Like, well, yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's still the cold. It still gets cold in some of those places. Um, it's still, you know, it, it's still far away from home. You know, it's not, it's not your West coast uh, blueprint. You know, it's not what you're used to. Um, you're going to go in there and just, and sometimes, Hey, that might, that might be the best thing for some kids and, and to get out to a different environment um, to be able to grow and, 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 um, grow within themselves and, and, or, or some it's like, okay, you know what? This is way too different from my liking. And I need to reassess my situation while I still got time and, and maybe get back to familiar setting. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, it, it is what it is. And, uh, you know, and, and hopefully, uh, you, you know, for, for the sake of Pac-12 football, we can, uh, you know, guys can, can, can see staying at home and playing on the West coast as a big deal. Um, as it was basically when 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 you and I were growing up. Yeah, yeah, heck, heck yeah. So I got I got a I got a tough question for you, Gerald. What? So you you are a coach. I'm a big believer that kids should be able to transfer once with an with an opportunity because coaches are able to to move. 
you have been having success at Cal. You just recruited and signed a class, and now you left to go to the Dolphins. How how does that conversation happen with your players, and how do you feel about that as a coach having to leave kids that you just either you know got to go to the school or already have a relationship with at Cal? Well, I never promised kids that I was going to be there. You know, I, I they asked, um, and they understand the landscape of what this is. This is this is a business. You know, just as 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 much as an opportunity can present itself that I can't refuse, and I ended up going to take a job, um, they can decide to get rid of me the next day. And so, um, yeah, it's hard to go through the recruiting process. And I used to tell kids this. Um, because I'm the one in your home. I'm the one having these conversations with you. I'm the one having the conversation with your parents, um, as well as the, the people that are in our building. And, and we know that people make the place. And sometimes that's the main attraction for some kid to make a decision and say, hey, you know what? I want to go there uh, to that university, um, not just because I want to go to that university, but I want to play for him or I want to play for them or I want to play for these people. or I want to be with these people. And then, you know, for for that to be kind of, you know, swept underneath them, um, you know, it, it, it is what it is. And, and so that's the nature of what this game is, um, what, what, this, what this college football game is, because there's, there's plenty of times where there's coaches that have great relationships with the kids and, and you know, the kids are, are maybe necessarily not having the football results that they want. Um, but, you know, the, hey, they're, they're, they're getting guys graduated and they're having – great college experience outside of maybe the results on the football field and the administration feel like they need to make a different, uh, go in a different direction. And those people are now, uh, you know, thrown out of the building with new people that are in place. So, um, you know, as far as a kid, you know, it, it's, it's as far as him making a decision and, you know, they've kind of lean, leniently got on the rules as far as uh, what these guys are able to do in regards to their playing careers. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a, you know, it, it's an ongoing debate, man, and when, in regards to coaches professionally moving and, and being able to make that decision for uh, their families. But again, that's that's a business. You know, that's that's the business. And I know that they're inserted into a business as a player in, in college football. Um, but that's something that you can you can talk over and over about, about who's able to have what kind of freedom to do what. As a kid from L.A., I know that we talked on this day, but talk to me about because because this is just something that I know was just all on my heart and is still just with me to this day. January 26, 2020. Where were you when you heard the news and what kind of effect did that have on you or having on you today? You know what? I was at home. I was at home and um, I want to say I, LeBron had just passed Kobe the previous mm-hmm. night. And, and I remember going to sleep late and I remember, you know, sports center loops over and over again late at night. And I remember just hearing this interview talk about, you know, what that meant to him. Um, and it was like hours later, you heard the news and it was, you know, I never, I never even thought that that would have the effect on me that it had. And it was like, you know, I couldn't believe it, you know, and even even as as you were going through the emotions of it, like, I, you know, I, I, I kept telling myself, like, I cannot believe that this is affecting me the way that it that it is. You know, I mean, I didn't 
I didn't know the guy. I never met the guy. I never been around him. I mean, I didn't have a relationship with him, but it was like he was a part of me, man. He was a part of he was a part of the childhood. You know, I remember there was so many, so many memories in life that was wrapped up into Laker games or championship parades or just just, you know, and not even if you were just a fan of the Lakers and growing up in Southern California. I think that people were affected by the death of Kobe just because you saw somebody that was so dedicated to his craft and he ended up being exactly what he wanted to be. He wanted to be known as one of the greatest and and just, you know, and not even have had the opportunity to see physically all the work that he put in, all the sacrifices that he made um, and closely being able to see it every day in practice. I mean, you saw it in his every game performance and you saw it in different moments and you saw it in spurts and you saw it. I mean, you just saw it, you know, and, and you know, just just seeing that and, um, you know, and especially as a parent, you know, and and, and just understanding the the relationship that he had with his kids and it seemed like you know kobe we grew up with kobe you know we we grew up with him when he was a 17 year old laker and now seeing him be uh you know a a father with 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 a great family and now he's he's found you know he's found his new passion in teaching the game and really dedicating the two to to his girl to his girls and and women in general you know he was a big advocate for uh, women's basketball and, and, you know, the things that he did with, with his daughter who was obviously into basketball and um, taking her to games and, and giving her those experiences that, you know, that, that he was given maybe when he was younger with his dad. And then just to, you know, you, you saw a person that even though at his, at his prime moments in his career uh, reaching the pinnacle um, and how glorious that is, you saw a happier person yep. post basketball. You saw a guy who dedicated a lot of his uh, a lot of that time that he did on the basketball court, and he poured it into his family because he sacrificed so much of that time to be what he wanted to be, and to to for it to abruptly end like that, you know, um, and, and not even like that, but just just period, you know, to see a guy just that may have uh, indirectly impacted so many people. Um, you know, it was it was heartbreaking, man. It was heartbreaking. And, and you saw the, the rest of the families, not, you know, and just just the whole thing, you know, the, the whole mm-hmm. thing. Um, obviously, you know, Kobe being a pivotal piece. But then you think about all yes. the people that were affected and and how people's people's lives had changed in an instant on doing something that was probably yep. very routine. Hey, we're going to go to practice. We're going to fly down here. This is something that we do all the time. Um, you know, we're going to go to practice. And then you started to think about, man, you know, this. You know, you, you think about your family, you think about your kids like, man, I don't I don't I don't ever want um, I don't ever want my wife to be away from me. You know, I don't ever want my, my kids to not have me. And, and let me, you know, uh, you know, everyday life, you're on the go when you're thinking about, all right, you know, let me make sure that this is taken care of now. Uh, let me make sure that this is done for tomorrow. And let me make sure some, you know, and, and sometimes and really, you know, kind of bringing things back full circle with this whole thing that's going on with this uh, with the virus and everybody having to stay at home. It's like. You know, everybody's wanting to know, okay, when's things going to go back to normal? But, you know, you look back and you think about kind of how you felt when, when you heard the news of, of Kobe. It's like, well, man, let me just let me just enjoy this moment right here with, with yep. these people, because you don't know when things are going to change. You don't know when lives are going to change. And so many lives are being affected right now with all this stuff. It's like, okay, you know what? Let me just 
let me just press pause and let me just take this opportunity where I'm not on the go and I'm not, you know, I'm not in the office. I'm not doing all this stuff. And let me just let me just enjoy family. Let me just enjoy it. And don't get me wrong. man. There's going to be times where like, man, I got to get away from everybody. But, you know, it's just it gives you it, it gave oh, you some sure. perspective. Um, and and it, it, it's something that, man, I don't think that I don't think that I'll ever get over um, in regards to just. You know, you see videos of and you see videos of Kobe. And again, it just reminds you of, of how much it really takes to be great. You know, it, how, how much sacrifice, how much effort. And, and, and there's and there's very few. There's a lot of good, um, but there's very few great. Yeah. He was one of them, you know, and, you know, the work that he put in and and, he, you know, the mama mentality, man. I mean, that 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 says something that reached out to a lot of people. And that's those aren't just two words. That's a yes. That's, that's a, a lifestyle, yeah. you know. And not everybody, not everybody, not every, not everybody's yeah. built like that. And it is what it is. And more and more than likely, um, you know, just like he did, man. He when he wanted to, he he brought it. And there's very few people that can say that they were yeah, one of those guys. I, I just love the fact that Kobe he literally gave every single thing that he had. Like he had nothing more in terms of basketball to give. And and people um, and people, I think, generally that they are attracted to passion, even even if they don't like the person, they are attracted to passion. Mm -hmm. And he had it like he had he gave it Mm -hmm. every single thing. And he was passionate about being a father. He was passionate about his storytelling. Like my uh, my oldest son, he's reading the Wizenard series. He just read uh, one of Kobe's. Kobe's books and I'm just like and that's where as a person like it was granted I only met the dude two times but it was by far one of the worst days of my entire life and it still makes me sick talking about it but but I was just like I I, I, and, and also the other part of me I don't know if you felt like this I felt cheated like I felt like he had so much more to give us and, and I felt cheated and also I felt mm-hmm. like the women's game and women's basketball and sports got cheated because what you see at Sierra Canyon with LeBron James's kid, the, the pomp and circumstance surrounding that, I believe that you would have seen that for Gigi when she was in high school. Like surrounding women. Right, basketball. right. I mean, you see, yeah, he, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see that, that that's exactly where it could have went. And then, you know, and again, the sadness is really the loss of loss of Gigi yep. and the rest of the kids. But but talking specifically her, where, um, you know, kid, kids they you know they have a future in front of them. She had as many goals and aspirations that any kid her age would have had, and and she was well on her way to to maybe achieving some of those goals and some. You know, there's there's no telling what um, what 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 that young lady could have done, and it's unfortunate that. Uh, you know, the, the, the tragedy happened and I'm pretty sure along her short life, man, she's, she's impacted so many people, um, as well as obviously her father. And, you know, that's the only thing that I guess is guaranteed on, on during your lifespan is, um, how you impact people and in, um, your everyday life. And, and, and when, when it's your time, um, the memories that you left, the, the, the impactful relationships that you, that you've made, um, the influence that you've made on people. I mean, you look at, um, you know, just, just a couple of days ago, you know, uh, the, the, the year anniversary of yep. really Nipsey's passing, um, who was also a, 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 a cultural influence in regards to, 
um, not just the musical part, but when you get a chance to, you know, I never met Nipsey at all, you know, and, uh, you know, you listen to his music and his music is obviously, you know, it, 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 it's entertaining and stuff like that. But then you, you know, you really listen to it, you know, yeah. you listen to the message and then you look at his interviews and you look at the kind of person that he was and the things that he talked about and the things that he believed and how inspiring that was to people, you know, just saying, okay, hey, the, I don't have all the answers, but hey, it's the marathon. Hey, there's going to be some things that I trip along along the way. And I'm not going to say that I got all the answers and, and it's all been smooth, but my persistence is what's kept me going and got me to the place that I'm going to and where I'm, where I'm striving to be. And so you look at a young dude like that, who was very inspiring. And, and both of those guys are, are figures in LA and obviously Kobe being uh, probably more of the prominent figure globally. Um, but individually, those guys had the same message in regards to persistence, passion, like you talked about, um, you know, and those are the things that, you know, it, you know, they, they inspire a lot of people, you know, and, and some people, again, they don't, they don't have that persistence. They don't have that level of motivation. Um, and sometimes it takes somebody that maybe they don't even know, um, or have a relationship with to be able to spark that influence. GA, I appreciate you coming on the podcast today, man, dropping, dropping some knowledge, sharing, and really taking time out of your day. I know that you got some, you, got some you, you know, this is the COVID time, special time with your family. You got a new baby, all of that. Wishing you and the Dolphins well this this season. And thanks for sharing, man. Appreciate it, man. No problem. What'd you think, Ralph? Man, I, I really like him. Um, I think that uh, I think that that's something – uh, if you're a coach out there and, and your team is struggling with with pass defense, um, Gerald Alexander, somebody, it's a name that you need to know because I cannot stress just how bad Cal was um, in the Jared Goff years. And imagine how good they'd have been if they'd have been able to stop anybody. Uh, and they just they 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 just couldn't. And so to be able to recruit the way that they did get a, a lot of unheralded guys in there and get them to buy into an answer-based system uh, that turned that entire team around. It, it, it set the model for what Arizona State was then able to do um, to, to also go from, you know, having the worst pass defense in the entire country uh, to, to build back toward respectability. So it can be done. You can work to get yourself out of the basement you know, and, 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 you know, he's, he's somebody who I think is going to have a lot of success. I don't think oh, we're yeah. done hearing from him yet. And I, I just no. love how available he makes himself. Um, and I, I like his perspective too. So I think it was a really good interview. Um, one of the things that I really, a, a, a couple of things that really stood out to me where he said, uh, every, everybody says that there's no I in team, but there is I in win. And that everybody has to win, whether you're playing football, basketball, life, like everybody on a, a group environment has to win their individual matchups. Like you, like there's no I in team, but there is an I in win. So every individual has to do their job if you want to win. I thought that was great. Uh, another thing where he said, he said, uh, success is leased and rent is due every day. So, and it reminded me of when Tex Winters, the architect of the triangle offense said that it's very similar to that, where he said, you're only a success in the moment that you complete or you do a successful act. That it's not something that's, 
that it's sustained. It's continuing that excellence that provides success. I thought those two things were absolutely fantastic. I hope it's never too late to, to learn that. I'm trying, that, that's, that's what I'm, I'm trying to get myself to a point where I realize, like, just, you know, for, for physical and mental and spiritual health, like, the rent is due every single day. You can't just depend on a good season or a, or a good moment. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm definitely working to adopt that, uh, that, that level of, of, of perspective and, and, and pay the proverbial rent on a daily basis. Yeah, and he also gave some really good per- perspective on recruiting in the Pac-12 and how much time, effort, and energy it takes to recruit a kid. I mean, and I, I like it just takes you away from your family, all of those things. And I, I just thought it was very insightful. And he also gave coaches tips on how to get into coaching. And it's not just the, all this stuff is applicable, not only to coaching, but it's also applicable to life because you also have to, you know, be willing to stand on a pile of no's for one yes. When you are entering a new industry, when you are, you know, trying to get your business up, when you're trying to get your, you know, your new career started, whatever, like you have to prove your value, prove your worth, because just sending out resumes in this day and age doesn't just cut it. Like you actually have to get experience. And it used to be why well, the, the chicken and the egg, well, I can't get experience if I don't can't get a job. Now in this landscape, you can create your own experience that it that then becomes attractive and people say, Oh wow, that can add value to my organization. So I thought that was really cool. Absolutely. You know, uh, availability can get you in the door, but that what's gonna keep you in the house, you know? Yep. 100% agree. Yeah, he that was a great interview. And thank you guys for listening to the Pac-12 Apostles. We appreciate your time. We appreciate your energy. Please make sure that you share the podcast with everybody that you know who jo- loves and enjoys the Pac-12. Um, yeah, so we're going to continue to bring guests. We're going to bring interviews. We're going to continue to bring all sorts of things. Shoot us what you guys want to hear as well. I'm mad at unafraidshow.com. He's Ralph Amston, at Ralph Amston, and I'm at George Reister. Appreciate it. Catch you guys later.